Good morning, church. He is risen. I think people at home could have heard that. That was pretty good. Well, I'm so glad to be here with each of you. Uh, Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Open up to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. We're going to read verses 29 through 42 this morning as we continue verse by verse going through the book of Acts. And today's message is entitled, Why the Pharisees Missed Easter. Now, I want to kind of approach it differently today as we jump into the text. I want us to take a step back, and I want us to look at where we've come over these past several weeks and even months. But I want us to look at the background from the perspective of the Pharisees. So I want us to take a step back, not me, because I'll yell at you, but I want us to take a step back and I want us to imagine that you are a Pharisee. You are one of the teachers of Israel. You're a strong Jewish leader. From, from four or five years old at the time you could begin to learn how to read, you've been memorizing the entire Old Testament. You spent your whole life so that everything that you do, everything that you say, everything that you even wear all goes back to glorifying God. That's what your life is about. You are set apart to serve the Lord. You're so careful to give God 10% of everything. So careful that when you go to McDonald's, you carefully select 10% of those fries for the Lord and 10% of your ketchup. I mean, everything that you do is about the Lord. As a Pharisee, you are honored and you're respected among the people of Israel. So much so that when people imagine somebody godly, imagine somebody righteous, they think of you because you're a Pharisee. You're a leader of the people. But then you begin to hear the people start to talk about this Jewish man named Jesus. You hear how Jesus taught the people, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You hear the people talk of Jesus performing miracles, like casting out demons, healing the sick, and even raising the dead. And so you yourself begin to investigate this Jesus for yourself. And as you're listening one day, you hear Jesus say something, like in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, where he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You're shocked. You're shocked because you understand that Jesus is saying, unless somebody becomes more righteous than even you, they won't even get into heaven. That's, that's something new. As you continue to watch Jesus, he says something even more shocking. Jesus declared a man's sins to be forgiven. And as a good Pharisee, you understand that only God can forgive sins. Who is this man to declare somebody's sins as forgiven? Only God can do that. And so you realize that Jesus was blaspheming. Jesus was making himself out to be God. You realize that such a sinner couldn't have been sent by God. So no matter what miracles he performs or what teaching he gives, he can't come from God. And yet many of the people, they openly wonder if this man Jesus could be the Christ, the Messiah. 
the anointed one, the savior of Israel sent by God. They talk about how the Messiah is supposed to come and maybe he will be our next king of Israel and he's going to set us free from Rome. He's going to deliver from their politics and from their kingdom. And once again, Israel will be independently standing. But this would prove troublesome for you as a Pharisee for two reasons. You see, if Jesus was made king, he would have authority over even you. We certainly don't want that, right? But the second problem is if Jesus becomes king and Jesus, this Messiah, the people say, leads the people in rebellion against Rome, Rome's going to squash Israel. Rome's going to squash them. And if you survive, Rome's going to take away any authority, any power, any honor that you had because you failed as a religious leader to keep the peace of your people under their control. The other religious leaders, they also recognize the dangers of Jesus. Caiaphas, the high priest, he even says in John 11, verse 50, he says, it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that not the whole nation should perish. Meaning he deemed it better for Jesus to die and not the whole nation of Israel die when they rebel against Rome. And so together, you plot to put Jesus to death. With the help of one of Jesus' own disciples, you're able to arrest Jesus in a secluded garden, away from the crowds and away from the potential riots. Along with the Jewish leaders, you determine and sentence Jesus to death, and then you have a trial to make it legit. You have Jesus beaten, mocked, and then crucified on a cross. Jesus is dead. The disciples, they fled. Finally, you say, finally, my problems with Jesus are over. We've saved Israel. We've protected them from their folly. And now we're safe. We're still at peace under Rome. Everything is going to be okay. Three days later, you hear from the Roman guards that they saw a bright light at the tomb, and now Jesus' body is missing. As strange as that is, you're not going to let some missing dead guy mess up the status quo. And so to help the story from spreading, you bribe the guards to say, just tell everybody that the disciples came and stole the body at night while you were sleeping. That way things don't get out of control. Once again, you feel confident. Life can go back to normal. Your place of honor, authority, everything is fine. A month goes by. A month goes by, and then you hear of another story. There was a crippled man in the temple, and he's been healed. A great miracle has been done. Crowds have gathered, and there's two men standing in the temple, and they're teaching the crowds. And they're teaching that Jesus is resurrected. They're teaching that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, and they're teaching that this crippled man has been healed by the power of Jesus. You bring the men before you and you find out that these are uneducated, untrained men. They haven't studied the Old Testament like you have. And yet you do see that they have been with Jesus. These are two of Jesus' disciples that are doing this. Unable to ignore the miracle, you and the others strictly warn these disciples. 
hey, knock it off. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. We don't want any more trouble. So just be quiet. But that was only the beginning. Over the next two weeks, many more people are healed. More miracles are being done. And daily in the temple, Jesus' disciples are preaching to the crowd that Jesus is alive. And all of Jerusalem has been filled with their teaching. And so the high priest, along with the rest of the Jewish leaders, they've arrested the disciples and they've thrown them into prison for the night. And once again, you think, all right, I can sleep well tonight. They're locked up tight, right? And if you were here last week, you know they weren't locked up tight because an angel came at night and let them out. And so you wake up as a Pharisee and in the morning you gather with the religious council and you're ready to put these guys on trial and tell them to knock it off. We told you to knock it off, now knock it off. And so you're ready and you send for the prisoners. But the guard comes back and he says, the prison was shut tight, but there's nobody inside. We don't know where they are. And as you ponder this news, another Pharisee barges in and he declares the missing disciples have been found. They're standing in the temple, preaching to the people, telling them about Jesus. Now you've got to be careful. Because once again, they're there before the crowd. And they're there teaching about Jesus. And if you arrest the disciples again violently, you might cause the riot. You might start a rebellion. And so the captain is sent and he gently requests the disciples to come back to trial. Please, pretty please. And they come before the religious leaders. And the high priest declares in Acts chapter 5, verse 28. He says, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Can you understand why the Jewish leaders were upset? Do you understand that they believed everything was on the line? Their place of honor, their authority, their livelihood, everything about them, even the fragile peace that they had under the Roman Empire, everything was on the line. And it was all because of this Jesus. And now the story of him is continuing. It's all being threatened. And so today we pick up our story in Acts chapter 5, verses 29 through 42. We're going to read about gospel presentation versus self-preservation. And so again, the high priest, he's just asked them, perhaps yelled at them, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. In other words, Peter declares that although you tried to kill him, you did kill him on the cross, God the Father, the God of Israel, the God who you claim to serve, he raised him back to life. Peter continues in verse 31. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those 
who obey him. When Peter here calls Jesus Prince and Savior, Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Messiah Prince, sent by God the Father to rescue all of us. But notice, he wasn't sent to rescue Israel from the Romans. He was sent to rescue Israel from their sin. And not just Israel, but the whole world. Three things I want us to notice about Peter's little speech here. First is Peter's boldness. Peter's boldness because Peter was the one being held captive. He was the one that was arrested. And yet Peter took the opportunity to boldly preach to his captive audience the gospel about Jesus. Second, Peter's confession to obey God rather than man. We talked about this earlier when we read the first time when they were arrested. But here again, we see that Peter only disobeyed earthly authority when it contradicted God's authority. And when he was forced to choose, he openly confessed, we must obey God, not man, when we have to choose. Third, Peter broke the rules before leaving the room. They just told him again, stop teaching in this name. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. And Peter speaks up and he says, let me tell you about Jesus. And he begins to preach to him. And he breaks their rules immediately. Now, in verse 33, look how the religious leaders react. It says, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. You see, they were desperate. They were desperate enough to put Jesus to death, and that wasn't enough. And so now they say, well, let's just kill these guys too, because we need to protect Israel. We need to protect what's under our control and our authority. And so let's just kill them like we killed Jesus. Verse 34, Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people. And he commanded to put them, the apostles, outside for a little while. This man, Gamaliel, he was a leader among leaders, a leader among the Pharisees. Now, as a side note, according to Acts 22, one of Gamaliel's students would become the Apostle Paul. So this man would have been Paul's teacher. And he, Gamaliel, verse 35, he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Gamaliel recalls these two leaders. These two leaders that we don't know anything about. We don't know them. And that's his point. He says, these guys rose up and they had a following. They started a movement among the people. And then the leaders died. And their followers, they dispersed. And nothing came of it. There was no big deal. 
And so verse 38, Gamaliel says, And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. We can see the wisdom in Gamaliel's words, right? We can see that he understands man's work doesn't need to be opposed and that God's work cannot be opposed. Therefore, he says, leave the disciples alone. Don't touch them. Ignore them. And we'll see if this is a work of man or if it's a work of God. Ironically, Gamaliel's own student, Saul of Tarsus, fell into this trap as he found himself precisely fighting against God, the God whom he was trying to serve. You see, Saul was a Pharisee, and he took it upon himself to protect his fellow Jews from this new way, these new Christians who were talking about Jesus and him being the Messiah. And so Saul begins to go out and find these Christians and arrest them and put them in prison and even put them to death. And one day as he's traveling to arrest more people, he recalls a story in Acts 26, verses 14 and 15, where Saul says, and then we'd seen a great light. We'd all fallen to the ground. And he says, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul was a Pharisee determined to spend his life serving God, and yet he found himself fighting on the wrong side. He found himself fighting against God. And so Gamaliel, he says, leave the disciples alone. If it's a work of man, you don't need to worry about it. If it's a work of God, you can't stop it anyway. So leave them alone. Verse 40, and they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. It's interesting that they agreed with Gamaliel, but they didn't quite leave them alone, did they? They dragged him in, they beat him up, and they sternly warned them again, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And look at how the apostles responded. Verse 41, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Notice, the apostles were not rejoicing because they'd been set free. They were rejoicing because God allowed them to suffer for his name. Isn't that crazy? I can just hear them talking on the way home saying, guys, I got punched in the face for Jesus. And the other one says, I know, my beard got ripped out for Jesus. Cool. Awesome. And you're like, weirdos. Why would they act like this? Because it's even more interesting to me that only two months ago, these were the guys that were hiding. Not bold. Not eager to suffer, but hiding. Now they're boldly preaching and taking punches. And so I ask, why? 
Why were they thrilled to serve Jesus, even if it meant suffering for his name? And I tell you that it's all because of Easter, the first Easter. Remember Peter's words before the Jewish leaders. In verse 29, he said, We ought to obey God rather than men. It shows that they were surrendered to God's will, not their own will. They were living for Him, not for themselves. Then in verse 30, they said, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. In other words, they remembered Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. And then they ended with verse 32, where he said, And we are His witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Their bold witness of Jesus is the result of the Holy Spirit in their hearts and flowing through their lives. And so we can summarize and say, and if you want to take notes today, this is your first fill in the blank. Because of Easter, the disciples were surrendered to obey God, empowered by the Spirit, and focused on eternity. Because Jesus was alive, because Jesus was no longer in that tomb, they were surrendered to obey God, no longer obeying what they wanted to do. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They weren't doing these things in their own strength, but in the power of God Himself. And they were focused on eternity. Suffering now was temporary. It didn't matter. What matters is the eternal. That's what we're living for. Yet, the religious leaders had a very different response. Let's look at why the Pharisees got it wrong. And it's because they sought after this life. The Pharisees were seeking after this life. You see, they had honor, they had authority, they had a successful life. When Jesus came along, He threatened all of that. And so because they were seeking to protect their earthly life and their comforts, and the things they enjoyed, Easter became a burden instead of a blessing. We read in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. It says, Then Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone desires to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. You see, when Jesus took up His cross and He headed towards His death on that hill, He was willingly laying down His life, submitting to the authority of God the Father. When we follow Jesus, we don't take up a literal cross, but we take up the example of absolute surrender to God. When we take up our cross, we're saying, Lord, my life is no longer my own, but it's Yours. It's what it means when we call God Lord. It means He's in charge And I'm not. And so we imitate Jesus by surrendering to Him. Choosing to live for Him and not for ourselves. And then Jesus continues in Matthew 16, verses 25 and 26. And He says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Again, many of the Pharisees gained much in this life. But because that was their focus on keeping their life 
consistent and constant and protected. They missed Jesus and his resurrection. They missed salvation. And they ended up in hell because they were too focused to see Jesus for who he was. Now, it's not a sin to have nice things. It's not a sin to have a good job or to be respected. But it is possible for us to be so consumed with this life that we miss out on eternal life. And so we've got to be cautious. Remember what the disciples said in verse 31 today in Acts 5. Him God has exalted to his right hand. In other words, Jesus rose again. Why? To be prince and savior. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You see, Peter gives us the whole purpose of Easter right there. The whole purpose of Jesus dying and coming back to life is so that he could be savior. So that he could give repentance and the forgiveness of sins to Israel and the whole world. In other words, Jesus gave his life for mine so that I might give my life for his. Jesus gave his life for mine in that he died on the cross. He paid for our sin so that we wouldn't have to. Our sins have been paid in full by Jesus. Jesus then rose again so that you and I can rise again into everlasting life. And we receive that gift of salvation through repenting from our sin, turning away from our sin. Please understand, we cannot earn this gift of salvation. There's nothing that we can do that would make us righteous in God's eyes. Because even if from this day forward, we never again sinned, we never told a lie, we never used God's name in vain, we never stole anything, we never looked at somebody with lust from this day forward. That would be incredible. And yet, a good judge would say, well done, but what about the sins you already committed? It would be like if there was a murderer who finally comes to trial. He'd been in jail for six months. The trial's finally here. And the judge says, look, we know you're guilty, but you've been so good these last six months, you haven't killed anybody. You're free to go. I wouldn't want to live in that country. And yet, so often, we get this idea of, Lord, I'll be good. Lord, I'll behave myself. And I, can, I, will, I will earn your pleasure. I will earn my way into heaven. And Jesus says, you can't. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Only Jesus was perfect. Only Jesus was without sin. And so because there is no other way for us to be saved, he went to the cross. He, the only one innocent, gave his all for you and for me. So we can't earn the gift of salvation. But please also understand that Jesus calls us to follow him. You see, I think it can be tempting for people to treat Jesus like car insurance. We've got that car insurance, we stick it in our glove box, and we forget about it. We prayed that prayer, or we believe that Jesus is God, and we think, well, I've done that, and so I'm good. 
if life gets crazy, then I'll give Jesus a call, right? If that guy runs the red light and hits me, then I'll call them. We'll deal with it. But otherwise, he's in the glove box. At that point, your life is still your own, right? Your hopes and dreams are still your own. Your possessions are still your own because that's not following Jesus. Your next fill in the blank, Jesus calls us to not only believe in him, but to follow him. And we do this by surrendering. You see, when we follow Jesus, it's not a one day we pray to prayer. It's not a, well, I believe the facts about Jesus and his resurrection. But it's a daily choice to follow him and say, Lord, my life is not about me. My life is about you. My life is about your name and not my name. Your glory and your kingdom. When we follow Jesus, our life is his. Our possessions are his. Our hopes and dreams are his. But wait, it gets better. You see, when we follow Jesus and we surrender everything to him, our burdens are his. Our problems are his. Our impossible situations are his. This surrendered life is what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul, remember he was the one read about earlier, who was Saul. And after meeting Jesus on the Damascus road, he says, Who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That's when he decided to give up his life and give his life to Jesus. And now Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Easter is not about how we can appease God. That's religion. Religion is man trying to get to God. Jesus said, you're never going to make it. That's why he came down to us. You see, Easter is about getting a new life. Easter is about getting a new life. And we get that new life by laying down the old life. But sadly, some of the Pharisees, they didn't want to let go. They didn't want to leave their old life. They enjoyed it. They liked it. And they believed that they were right and Jesus was wrong. They had a firm grip on their career, on their honor, on their comforts. And sadly today, some have a firm grip on their lifestyle, on their sins, or on their self-image. And they're holding on to these things. And Jesus says, I died for you. I rose for you to give you new life. But their hands are full. They don't want to let go. They're happy with where their life is at. They don't want things to change. If Jesus can fit his salvation into my hands, that'll work. But Jesus says, you've got to surrender. You've got to let go. Lay down the old and take on the new. You see, in order to become a Christian, you don't need to fix your life or stop sinning. In order to become a Christian, you need to surrender, to die to self, die to your flesh. If we'll do that, the Holy Spirit comes into our heart. We're saved at that moment, not because we're good, but because God is good. And when God looks at us, 
having put our faith in him, he no longer sees all of our sins and our failures because we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. He looks at you and I who have believed in him and he says, you're perfect because I've made you that way. And you say, well, I I still kind of mess up sometimes. And Jesus says, I paid for it already. I've already paid for that. You're righteous in my eyes. But it doesn't stop there. You see, the beauty of it is the salvation that we have in Christ, that Holy Spirit that comes and lives in us. It doesn't just mark us as saved and mark us as his own, but the Holy Spirit begins to change our heart from the inside out. The Holy Spirit begins to give us new desires. The Holy Spirit begins to make us less like our flesh and more like Jesus. Those sins we could never defeat, we could never stop, we could never give up or kick to the curb, we look back and we say, Lord, you've delivered me. Maybe it wasn't always easy, but where I failed, the Holy Spirit has come through. Where I couldn't have victory, the Holy Spirit has had victory. Jesus tells us in John chapter 12, verses 24 and 25, He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus is that single grain of wheat. Jesus is the only one who is without sin, the only one who is righteous. And yet he gave his life in his death on the cross. He produced life, a harvest of souls. Because through his death on the cross, he provided life for you and for me and anyone who would put their faith in him. Anyone who would say, Lord, I need you to save me, I give you my life. I lay it down. I surrender to you. Jesus says in the very next verse in John 12, 25, he says, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Hold on to your life, protect it, and you'll remain just a single grain of wheat like the Pharisees. You'll keep your old life for now. But if you die to yourself, you have new life, spiritual life like the disciples. The Pharisees were warned, leave these men alone lest you find yourself to be fighting against God. Well, if we tighten our grip on life, if we seek to preserve our flesh, then we fight a losing battle. Because one day, we will die. And what profit is there if we gain the whole world, but lose our soul? The Pharisees believed that Jesus was still dead. And their life reflected that. They did their best to preserve their livelihood because they believed Jesus was still dead. He's not in the tomb, but he's somewhere. He's dead. I need to protect myself. The disciples knew that Jesus was alive, so they did their best to live for him. What about your life? Does your life reflect the fact that Jesus is alive? Or does your life act like Jesus is still in the tomb? Maybe you've been living for yourself. 
Maybe you've been trying to assert yourself. Maybe you've been trying to fix yourself. Maybe you've just been trying to pamper yourself. Jesus says, die to self. Die to self. Surrender to him. Don't keep him in the glove box. But give him the steering wheel. Say, Lord, my life is no longer my own. My life is yours. I surrender to you. Live your life like Jesus is alive because he is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that the tomb is empty. We're so grateful that you are alive. You are at the right hand of God the Father in heaven right now. And Lord, the only reason you have not come back to this earth to claim it as your own and to create a brand new heaven and earth for us to live with you forever and ever, the reason that hasn't happened yet, Lord, you tell us you're waiting for more people to get saved. God, you are patiently waiting for more people to surrender and lay down their life to you. God, I pray that if there's anybody here today or listening online that's been living for themselves or they've been trying to hold on to the things of this world, Lord, they haven't yet surrendered to you. God, I pray today would be that day where they simply look to you and say, Lord, you are my Lord. Forgive me of my sin. Take my life. And use it for your name and your glory. Lord, if there's anybody here today that they, they, they believe in you, but they've just kept you in the glove box. God, I pray today would be the day where they choose to follow you, to surrender, to lay it all down and say, Lord, I want to stop living for me. And I want to let you be in control of my life. Lord, we're so thankful that you take us where we're at. And Lord, we're so thankful that you don't leave us there. Lord, would you please fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. God, would you make us a church that lives and breathes reflecting the truth that you are alive, that you are on the throne God, may we remember to focus on eternity, to be empowered by your Spirit. And Lord, may you continue to change us and to make us more and more like you. Give us the faith we need to surrender it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand with me. Let's worship. And I just want to encourage you, if you've made a decision today to lay it down before Christ, to make Him your Lord and your Savior, let us know. We'd love to pray for you and encourage you in this journey of faith as we begin to follow Him with our all. Let's worship the Lord together. As you go, know how much the Lord loves you, that he was willing to go to the cross 
for you. If we can pray for you, there's men and women up front that would love to do so. Don't forget to sign up for a life group outside if you're interested. And on your way out, greet somebody else. Tell them Jesus loves them. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for coming.